This would be the first question that I would ask any entrepreneur. And it is a very telling question if you nail the answer, and especially if you don't nail the answer. And here's the question. What is your story? Don't tell me about your products. <laughs> don't tell me about your services. What's your story? Tell me what the story is that you have formed that is going to be emotionally significant, functionally relevant to me. And if you can nail down that story, everything else is going to fall in line behind you. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. You know, I really do appreciate uh, the listenership and everybody that's uh, been supportive. I've been getting, we've been getting some comments online and emails. And so just, you know, keep those comments coming. You know, what you liked, uh, what were some of the insights you gathered from guests. Sometimes these podcasts are sort of listened in a vacuum, pardon the pun, and we never really know the impact of it, but uh, periodically we hear from different listeners, and so thank you for that. You know, and we also do thank you uh, for sharing, pass it on, leaving a positive comment on whatever platform you're listening on. If you have some guest ideas for us, please pass those on as well as we want to be able to serve you there. You know, as always, CRG is the the sponsor of this show, being Consulting Resource Group, uh, our publishing and training company. And part of what we talk about today with Kieran Therakan. So interesting name, and with my dyslexia, I'm just saying it carefully, and he's written a book that's really talking about story and the importance of really having an articulate story so that people can kind of buy into what's going on, not from a story from a self-centered point of view, but from a self-honoring, but also a service. How does my, what I'm doing in my story really impact you in a positive way? So Kirian does an amazing job of just sort of articulating that, talking about the seven sort of essential pieces of a successful story in, you know, personally, professionally, as a leader, as a company, and how that all applies to us. And of course, all his contact information is in the show notes. So my really challenge to you, if you already haven't done so, is have you clarified what your story is and who you are? Because one of the steps in a story is, do you know what you believe in? And so one of our online courses and assessments is the Values Preference Indicator. It's our second most popular tool that we have after the Personal Style Indicator. And if you haven't taken that, my encouragement is to consider that. If you know somebody who is really struggling with clarity and they really want to take their life to the next level, that they know that they know that they know and they have this sort of certainty and they want to make the right decision every time, then our encouragement is, is that they either take the Values Preference Indicator or even take the full e-course, which is what do you really value? So thank you again for being a Secrets of Success listener or subscriber. And here's our show with Kurian Therakan. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. So... What does it really take to be a charismatic leader? What does that take? Well, you don't have to think about that anymore because our guest today has written a book on it called The Seven Essentials, Essential Stories to Charismatic Leaders and What They Tell. But we'll get into the story first. So, Kurian, how do you say your last name correctly? Therakin. Therakin. So, welcome to the show. And uh, thanks for hanging out with Secrets of Success today. Thanks for having me, Ken. Well, you're welcome. You know, it's always cool to have, um, you know, leaders on the show and experts on the show. But as everybody knows on Secrets of Success, if you are a regular listener, we want to delve into your story. So, uh, Kieran, that is kind of an interesting first name. And since this is an audio podcast, they have no idea sort of your background or culture so where does that hail from? Uh, Kirin is a South Indian Christian name, actually. It means uh, it's got a Syrian Orthodox background. It's uh, got roots in uh, Italian. It's got roots in Greek. 
lots of things. It actually means of the Lord, shockingly enough. My great-grandfather wow. was a priest back in the uh, church back in South India. It's a very old church, uh, as old as the uh, Catholic Church is. And in fact, uh, the legend is, is it was founded by Thomas the Doubter. And in fact, uh, he was actually martyred in India in, I think, of 52 A.D., something like that. 52 yep. A.D.? Yes. Hey, that, that's, that's not like 1500 sorry, A.D. Sorry, you said no, 52. I did say 52 A.D., yeah. So when the disciples, yeah. you know, all went out into the world, he came to India. And uh, he uh, wow. founded, uh, and the legend goes that he founded the churches there, right? And uh, that uh, eventually he was martyred there. And that was in, in the 50s, 50 AD. Whew. Man, do you have a heritage that's rich? Greek, <laughs> it's Roman, a, Syrian? Yeah. Like, what don't you have? Man, all, like, all of those all. things. Man, aren't we honored? Okay, so that's awesome. I appreciate that story. That's cool. So now, were you uh, born in Canada, or did you come with your family, or what's the story there? So I'm 57 years old. So I came to Canada in 1968. And so I was five years old at that point in time with my family. We uh, went, moved from, uh, from India. We were in a number of different places in India. My dad was an x-ray technician, and my mom was a medical secretary. Moved from, uh, from India to London, England, and straight from London, England, six months later, to Panoka, Alberta. Which is I, know that, I know that place. <laughs> Do you really? I know that place, unfortunately. No, no, I'm kidding. So, uh, <laughs> well, what, well, what caused your parents to want to go from London? Because I know there was a lot of people of Asian sort of descent that were in that region. So what caused them to want to come to Canada? Well, you know, uh, the Canadian government was recruiting all sorts of medical uh, professionals at that time, late 60s. And so they had their choice. My dad had his choice of going almost anywhere in Canada that he wanted. He chose Alberta because one of the uh, slogans for Alberta at that time was sunny Alberta. And, of course, you're in the middle of London, England. You don't really clear what that means in the middle of January, right? But uh, that's how he chose Alberta. And then there was a little town south of Edmonton. 60 miles south called Panoka, and he ended up there in the middle of a stampede weekend, 1 July in 1968. Well, he Stood moved during the summer. He didn't move in February, and I went to school in Alberta, so this is sort of how I have some knowledge to, in Olds College, which is an agriculture college. Sure. And uh, so I know what it's like to be minus 50 for a couple of days. Uh, that would have been a shock to your system, I'm sure. I'm sure it was a shock to his system. As a kid, I'm probably, hey, this is just my life, you know, this is the way, the way it is. <laughs> Hello, snow. Hey, this is cool. I can make, uh, build some snowmen. Uh, and uh, probably couldn't have done that in very many places in the UK, though it would have been rainy for sure. It would have been rainy for sure. So uh, welcome to Alberta and your family getting settled in, you know, south of Edmonton. What happened kind of after that for you? Well, you know, I went to grades, uh, grades 1 through 12 there, uh, came up to university, uh, and I never really left Edmonton. Uh, my sisters both moved to the U.S. Uh, one of them, uh, they're, both teach, uh, they're both teachers. One's a principal of a school down in uh, just uh, north of D.C., and the other one is in New York. But, you know, for, I just stuck around in, in Edmonton, and uh, my entire uh, career was here, either in marketing or sales or a variety of those kinds of you know, communication-related activities. And uh, the book I wrote is a direct result of those kinds of learnings that I've had over the last 35 years. Mm, cool. So when you went to university, what did you take? I took a, a business. Uh, so I went to the School of Business here at the University of Alberta, and uh, I majored in marketing at that time. Uh, but I, I think, you know, I will tell you that I've probably learned more about marketing in the last five years than in the previous 35, and because it's a very rapidly changing field. Uh, some, of the, some of the principles are still very uh, fundamental, of course, right? But the way you apply those principles, those strategies are very different as the landscape of Internet and digital technologies change. Mm. Now, you know, I'm a, a host that likes to probe a little bit, and part of that is, what do, when you think about the culture of your family growing up, what, what, how would you describe 
really the culture of your family in terms of supporting you, encouraging you, or just what was that like for you there? Did you feel that, okay, uh, you were encouraged to do whatever you needed or wanted to realize your potential, or uh, were you given sort of certain guidelines that this is the way we want you to go? Well, I think there's always uh, expectations, you know, in especially in Asian families, I, I find, anyways, uh, of, you know, what are desirable professions, <laughs> right? and, you know, that's doctor, lawyer, engineer, that kind of thing. And, of course, I went into business. And so, I, you know, I was always encouraged to, uh, to go to school after, after high school, go to university and such. But, uh, you know, the path I took as a marketing uh, professional certainly wasn't part of the prescribed um, career paths that most Asian families would have. You know, all, all that how, how did they react to your uh, entrepreneurial independence? Well, they eventually accepted it you know it's uh it's very little you can do after you uh after your kids leave the house uh but you know eventually they saw that this is something that i was uh good at and uh, i certainly wasn't you know uh, uh cut out to be anything other than what i am right now you know so it was a part of a just a natural skill set and at the at you know when you're in your mid 30s mid 40s you eventually start tuning your parents desires for your career path out because your career path is only 15 or 20 years more right it's not another 35 years more well exactly well listen i'm the first born male eastern european descent growing up on a dairy farm i had no pressure to stay on the farm not so no. <laughs> and when I left, uh, you know, you said we betrayed, we did all of this for you, all that kind of stuff. So I get it. I understand. And, you know, what would you say to listeners as far as this journey of trying to balance this expectations of family in your own journey? What would you say to some of those people there? And I know this links into some of the leadership um, stories that you have, but what would you say to the, uh, to the listeners about that? And you're talking about the family that I, that I grew up in, is that correct? Yes. Well, okay. yeah, and just generally speaking as a leadership expert. Well, I think, you know, leadership in families is just as relevant as leadership in organizations and leadership in anything that you're trying to do. So the way you go about guiding any of those entities, family, organizations, you know, companies, whatever it is, it can be fraught with a lot of danger and a lot of opportunity. And so the question becomes, how do you navigate that? And so what you will find is that, you know, the, the critical thing that all of these things have in common is that the actual leader is not the authority figure, whether that be your father or the boss, whoever it is, but it's actually the story that the authority figure is espousing, you know, the ones that they are telling. And if that story is really believable, suddenly the authority figure doesn't have to be as much of an authority. You buy into the story that they tell. Here was a very interesting thing that, uh, that was revelatory, and that is that a great leader with a poor story actually becomes a poor leader. But even a mediocre leader with a great story has the opportunity to become a great leader. Whether you are a father, a mom, uh, whether you're the boss, you know, the story you tell your, your people is something that's got to be something that's, you know, compelling and enlivening and, and that can infuse them with some kind of a direction that they really want to move forward in of their own will. Mm. Well, one of the guests that I had on the show, and I just encourage uh, you to uh, look some of his information up as well as the guest, was Lance Secretan, Dr. Lance Secretan. Sure. Lance is now 80, and so he just wrote a book called The Bellwether Effect, and he says, listen, I don't really believe in mission statements. I believe in dreams. And so what you're saying and what Lance is saying is that this power of story, in other words, you know, who or is it that we're really becoming? Where are we going? How do I fit into that is critically important uh, to engagement, to energy, to all these kinds of things. Agreed. Completely agreed. So when you finished university and you were talking about you did all these different things and rather than just skip over them, uh, where, where did you head after university and getting your business degree? So a variety of different paths. You know, I've done everything from, um, from commercial real estate, uh, leasing, you know, uh, working with uh, retailers, finding them space. When Blockbuster was a big thing, I was very much whoa, involved. Whoa, in, whoa, uh, whoa, Way back in the 90s. <laughs> uh, now, 
at the peril of having young millennial listeners, Blockbusters was a brick-and-mortar store that rented VHSs and then end up uh, DVDs and end up Blu-rays and end up out of business. And then so, up out of business. And they had the opportunity to buy Netflix at one point in time at a very reasonable valuation comparatively. And uh, that was a story. You know, the Netflix story is the one that really took off, right? But Blockbuster was the story for the time. And when I was involved with them, I, I did a lot of their site selection, most of it actually, in Edmonton in like probably the early 90s, right? And they still had another 15, 20 years to go after that. Uh, but I did that. I was in the uh, corporate finance business, which is the, which is the junior uh, sister to investment banking. So we would do deals, you know, uh, buying companies, selling companies, raising capital for companies. Uh, but there's a significant portion of sales and marketing involved in that as well, not only in finding the buyers, but finding companies, great companies to sell. Mm. When you think about your career path, what were some of the trigger points that got, moved you on? So you're doing commercial real estate and you're finding spots for Blockbuster and then all of a sudden you're doing this corporate financing piece. How did that transition occur? Well, this I have a, I have a line in the book and it's, um, I wonder if I can, I can remember it verbatim. Uh, it's in the chapter about religion and every organization has a religion. That doesn't mean you're worshipping a deity in the company itself. You know, you certainly shouldn't be worshiping the boss. What, what organizations, the people organizations do worship is the values and the belief systems of that organization. And the line that I have in the, um, in the end concluding, the insight and application section, is if you've ever left an organization in anger, you, that company has probably violated one or more of the values you thought you were buying into when you first joined them. And mm -hmm. if you stay with the company and you are still in love with the company, you are, you are in love with that company's religion, which is that values and belief systems, you know, the things that they, that mm -hmm. they hold sacred, that they revere. And so any time that I've moved on, it's because uh, I thought there was probably a better uh, story to pursue or something was violated. <laughs> mm -hmm. But, you know, at, at, at some point in time, I remember a, a great line from Tony Robbins, and it, it is this. The only time you're ever unhappy in your life is when you are not growing. And so if you're not growing, you know, then things start, especially if you start sliding back, you're probably going to want to start looking for new ways to expand. And that's, and that's what ended up happening to me more than once. Yeah, for sure. I, I guess some people would say, you know, what you're talking about as values is also uh, an underpinning around the word culture in what the company stands for in that way. Yeah, and the core of culture is values. The core of culture is values, and then it goes from there. And then you have various pillars of that culture. In the book, the first half of the book is all about culture, defining the culture, the pillars of that culture, the engines of that culture. And then the last part of the and these are two totally standalone sections. The second portion is all about the stories that you infuse into that culture. And ultimately, culture is the operating system. It is the always-on operating system that guides behavior, even when there's no one around to punish or reward that behavior. So people do the right thing because the culture is so infused in their minds, if, that, if that's actually taken hold. Mm. Now, I'm just going to back up a second. And of course, I kind of move back and forth through the flow here. Um, when you, where did you kind of go after this investment or this banking side of things? After the investment bank side, I actually ran the sales and marketing teams of a enterprise class software company here in Edmonton. And we had some very large clients. Uh, some of our biggest clients were Microsoft and Citigroup and such. Uh, but we had lots of small clients as well, you know, 20 bed hospitals in, in Topeka, Kansas and, and, and such. Uh, a little company you will never have heard of, but we created uh, some very specialized software that was the number one type of software in its class. It's a uh, security software for uh, physical security premises uh, and people that, uh, that patrol that, not patrol that, that enforce the security. Cool, cool. And then where did you go after that? Where, uh, then I started off uh, in the consulting business and I went back to consulting and uh, 
that was in 2009, and I've been doing uh, this kind of consulting work since then. So I have a little company called Strategy Peak Sales and Marketing Advisors, and we advised over the years. Uh, we've advised hundreds upon hundreds of startup uh, entrepreneurs on how to get into their markets, scale in their markets, refine their stories, sharpen their value propositions, and hopefully build a lasting enterprise. And that's always been fun. Entrepreneurs are a very intriguing breed of people. And, and you know, uh, they often are in business as a result of a blind leap forward, right? So sometimes the structure uh, may not be fully formed around them. And so there's always an opportunity to create something that's a little bit more stable. What was driving your motivation to be in and get into the consulting space? It was just a lot of fun. Uh, you know, beyond the fact that everybody needs to have something to occupy their time and uh, create a buck, uh, this particular type of uh, work, it allowed me to meet all sorts of new, uh, very cool companies, technologies. Uh, I'm, I'm actually an executive residence at one of the incubators in town that's associated with the university. So some very cool technology that comes out of that space. And... Uh, more often than not, you have a, a deep expertise in the, in the science behind the products, uh, but not as much in the actual structure of a company that needs to uh, be formed to take that product to market and then scale it as an enterprise. Mm. Well, uh, thank you for your contribution in helping entrepreneurs to go forward. Now, you made a comment that I just let slip by about, uh, you said entrepreneurs are an interesting group. Um, was maybe not the exact quote. What do you mean by that? Well, entrepreneurs, from the perspective of there's no school for entrepreneurship. You don't go, unlike a doctor or an engineer, uh, even if you go and get a business degree, you get an a, a MBA, whatever it is, it does not prepare you fully for the rigors of entrepreneurship, especially when you're bootstrapping especially when you're bootstrapping. So the kinds of people that we meet are a different uh, breed in the way they think about what's in front of them. You know, there's, there's no prescribed landmark. I'm sorry, no prescribed plan. Uh, an entrepreneur, even in the same industry as an entrepreneur that has gone before them and created something successful, has to recut that path through that bamboo forest for themselves. It's regrown behind the first entrepreneur. You know, that path is gone. So what's mm. worked for somebody already is not something that will necessarily work for you. Unlike the doctor who can see how a surgery was performed and then recreate that same process. In fact, that's probably a good idea, right? Mm -hmm. uh, engineers, same kind of thing. Uh, entrepreneurship, no, not at all. You are, have to create it from scratch for yourself each time because your culture your lens, which, which is culture again, uh, the way you think about things is going to be very different. Your resources are going to be different. Your market opportunities are going to be very different. So the plan has to be unique to you. Mm -hmm. And there are some principles, obviously, that apply, but it's still, it's, uh, it's, it's almost like a snowflake where it's still a snowflake, but the, each single one is completely unique and different and all the dynamics that play into it. So appreciate that. So that being said, and then we'll just kind of mix our conversation between your, I'll call it your consulting expertise and experiences in your book. What are some of the, you know, so our listeners are, um, from what we can tell, you just never know who's listening. I mean, I got a, a note from somebody the other day in, in Australia said, thank you very much. Listen to it. It was really appreciated. So you never know who's really, really listening to your podcast. But that being said, we know they're leaders, business owners, people who and professional developers. That being said, what are some of the insights that you have learned that our listeners can apply in if they're in any kind of business or any kind of leadership? And let's just kind of start with some of the things that come to mind to you. And if they want to be part of the seven essentials, that's fine. Or if something different, that's okay. So what would you share with the audience today that would be helpful for them that they can take and apply and go forward with? Well, if I were to give somebody one piece of advice and only one piece of advice, it would be this. The only thing that somebody buys from you, therefore the only thing that you should be selling is the big idea. Now I want to, let me, let me unravel that. The big idea 
is a way to solve that customer's pain or get them to gain. So you have to have a deep understanding of that customer. So then the big idea is something that can solve that pain gain point. From that big idea, you create a series of value propositions that are very specific to getting them out of pain, getting them to gain, a set of key messages that summarize what those value propositions are and what the big idea is all about. And then finally, and this is the big one, you wrap it all up into a set of stories. Because stories are very memorable. They're very transferable, very communicable. And so if you have a great big idea that is wrapped up in a scintillating story, that is the only thing somebody buys from you. And here's the, here's the trick. What do I mean by buys from you? Once they buy into that story, they have given you their attention, they have given you their share of mind, then they can automatically hand you their credit card to get the tool set of your products, which are simply tools to fulfill the promise in the story that they bought. So unless they can buy into your story, they can't or won't buy into anything else. So if there's one thing you've got to create is a great story. And that is the thing that you sell before anything else. Mm. And of course, all of us, uh, and thank you for that, all of us like to kind of do that and achieve that. Where's the blockage for many entrepreneurs or leaders in creating these stories? They're not doing it at the level that you're encouraging them to. So what's getting in the way of, of this sort of strategy or process for them? Uh, the number one thing that gets in the way is that they have fallen in love with their product or their technology. That is the number one thing for entrepreneurs anyways. Uh, so most of the time when we run into an uh, entrepreneur that needs help in scaling the marketplace, the product's already built and then they're trying to find a market for it, right? And a market is just a bunch of people that want to buy something, but no one has actually bothered to go to these people and get a deep dive into what is driving them. What I often say is most entrepreneurs can tell me what they are selling, but they can't tell me why their clients are buying. Mm. So what are the motives that are driving this purchase? And the more you understand those motives, the more you're able to craft a product that fulfills the big idea that is so scintillating to that, uh, to that market, to those individuals in that market, right? So mm -hmm. they're way too, way too uh, in love with the technology or the products that, they, that they've created. And they fail to see that what they really have to do is satisfy these deep pain and passion points of the clients. Mm. And maybe it's never been their business. I mean, both of us know Michael Gerber's work, right? And uh, we're technologists, we work in the business, so we don't work on it. And in really trying to recommunicate it to be pain-based, a lot of them actually don't even have that skill, do they? I, I think that's correct, right? Uh, m most do not, uh, right? But it's not that they can't be learned. It's not right. that they can't be learned at all. But sometimes you don't know what you don't know. And, sure. and that's another reason why, you know, coaches are so... Uh, good for entrepreneurs at those stages is because they have seen this uh, maybe a hundred times and you may have never faced it once. Mm, for sure. And, and that's why, I mean, we believe that here at CRG too, is that having an advisor, an assistant, a trusted uh, confidant, whatever you want to call coach, is that is critically important to our success. It's not uh, admission of being a loser. It's actually the opposite is that you see the, your success through and with the eyes of some assistance. So that's great. So when we think about your seven essential stories, help us uh, to unpack that and what do you mean by these different stories and what is it, how does that apply to our audience today? Well, the seven stories are based on the deep primal questions that anyone would have when they're encountering a new situation, when they're asked to become involved in something, to join something. And these seven stories are something that your brain automatically looks for in the answers to these questions. So the, the stories are answers to the questions, these primal questions that you would have. 
Uh, do you want me to rattle off what the seven you, you stories it. are? You're, you're, okay. It's your book, and so this is why you're here. So you. So the seven stories are, uh, the very first one is creation and origin. How did this start? What was the inciting incident? Uh, what drove you to create a, a business or this product even? You know, what, what was the market void, the deep pain that you were trying to solve? And people are often very curious about what this was all about. Uh, the second one, uh, so you created this enterprise or this company, but what is your deep belief system? So the next story is our identity, beliefs, and values. So who are you as people? Uh, what do you believe in, truly believe in, and how does that manifest itself? What are your deep values? Now, if you're an entrepreneur, you're putting this in your products, but if you're a leader of an organization, you're act, having to tell your people, especially the new recruits, the, what kind of company they're joining and what kind of values you want in your people as a result. The third story is the big idea, and we just talked a little bit about the big idea, but what is it that we're trying to gather as the central organizing concept to either get people out of pain or get to gain, or what are we trying to accomplish? What's the mission, vision, those kind of things? Tell me what the big idea is. You know, so in the 60s, uh, we had John F. Kennedy, and his big idea was to land a man on the moon by the end of the decade and return him home safely. And when he made that speech in 62, you know, no one knew how to do it. They had some vague ideas of the technology that they can use and such, right? Mm -hmm. But no one knew how to do it. Uh, but they made that happen in like seven or eight short years. It's a very quick time. Uh, mm -hmm. Number four, the enemy we face. So the enemy is not necessarily an individual or, or you know, an entity of any kind. It can simply be a challenge. You know, the enemy might be something as, what is it, uh, as uh, evil of some kind, all of its different manifestations, but it can be also something as simple as inefficiency. You know, we are way too wasteful in this, uh, in this organization. We've got to bring that uh, back to some acceptable level or eliminate it altogether. Now, here's the big one, the mighty wins. If you ever want to persuade somebody, this is one of the most powerful stories you can tell. It's the mighty win story. So in every situation, there is a macro trend behind the scene, macro trend or trends, plural maybe. And so these macro trends, they don't care whether you believe in them or not. They are going to come into your life and they're going to create winners and losers as a result. So you might as well understand the macro trend and get on the winning side. So I'll give you an example. Uh, back in the 1950s and the 1960s, uh, two credit card companies were formed, right? And Visa in the 50s, late 60s with MasterCard. And the, the ensuing 60 years, has been the macro trend of cash to plastic. Mm. And the vast majority of the world is not on plastic yet, which is digital now, but you know, cash to plastic is the macro trend. Now, both MasterCard and Visa and, uh, and a number of other you know, competitors to theirs, but MasterCard and Visa went public just a few years ago. If you had invested it at the IPO price, you would be a very rich person today in both those stocks. And, and Visa came out after MasterCard did, and it's still, you know, I think it's up four or five times from its IPO price right now. Uh, MasterCard way beyond that, way beyond that. And so understanding the, uh, what is it, the macro trends creates winners and losers. So you can be in the opposite side of that as well, and you could be in the uh, currency printing business, right? You, you uh, sell paper products to, uh, mm. to governments. Well, I think that might be on the way out, that particular industry, uh, over the next 50, 60 years. And well, if, you, if you even think about the music industry and how that has changed. Now, vinyl records has come back and, of course, use it, but yeah. you're never going to see the 8-track player again. And probably you're probably not. both old enough to have used it, and, uh, as well as the cassette player. And, uh, of course, there are some people listening said, what the heck is that? because they might have heard of CDs, but now, I mean, forget it. It's not even going to happen. There's not even a CD player in most computers you buy. Yeah, in fact, <laughs> and that's just it. In fact, it, the technology keeps moving forward, right? And again, it's, it's completely, it completely doesn't care whether you believe in it or not. It simply is going to create that wake of either creation or destruction. 
And you've got to be on. You've got to choose the side that you're going to be on. Well, it's interesting. You know, we think about our own business as a producer of psychological tools and assessments. And when I bought CRG 20 years ago, everything was only in print. Yeah. And then not that long ago, just two years ago, we had a lot of our support materials on CD-ROMs or DVDs that people would get. Uh, those are all gone already. Just like in 24 months, I had to totally transform into downloadable products for everything. So that is a just a trend that just, woof, here we go. And of course, now that uh, people are um, into this online world, sort of forced consumption or transition, now we have this whole transition from, okay, I don't need to have an in-person coffee. I can just get on, on uh, some kind of online platform and meet with you. And, of course, that's what we're doing here. I'm in Vancouver. You're in Edmonton. And here goes this interview. This wasn't even really possible 20 years ago. Exactly, yeah. And, either, and you're on the right side of it. You know, and there's... Uh, <laughs> And there are still people, you know, I still know people who just got an internet connection in their home, you know, just a couple of weeks ago. Shockingly enough, right? And I can't even imagine that. Really? Uh, this, is, yeah. this is 2020 when we're recording this. You could be listening to this in 2030. Yes. Uh, really? They just got an uh, internet connection? Uh, quite, quite literally, you know, uh, and that was so that they had, so that they could teach their online classes from home because they weren't allowed in the classroom back in, uh, back in the university. No, but yeah. Well, I, I upgraded to fiber optics a year ago <clears throat> just because we were doing so much work online and try to stabilize it. I said, man, if it was anything that was slower than that, I wouldn't even be able to function. And that idea of continually upgrading that, uh, what is it, uh, con connectivity, right? The, right? the speed of it. Uh, we're about to get uh, one gigabit uh, fiber in our offices just so we can stay on top of everything we're able to do now uh, through Zoom and, and all these different types of video connections, right? And we need to have a super fast connection in order to do that. Mm. Well, thank you for that. So then after this sort of macro win story, what's next on your list? Okay, so the seven stories total. So the mighty wins is all about uh, story number five. That is story number five. Now, imagine an equation. The first five stories are the left side of the equation. And if those stories are believable, then the equal sign says, then story six, the journey we must undertake must be true. So story six is all about the journey we must undertake. If those first five stories are absolutely believable, it is absolutely implicit that we are going to take, undertake this journey. And so, this is a way to give your people, give your marketplace a story that outlines the steps of that journey and where we are going as a destination. Because they've already set in their mind on the left side of the equation that these are believable stories that say we are compelled to action. Because the only thing worse than death is stagnation, which is an eventual death. And if you don't move forward, you are stagnating. And you might not die today, but if you don't grow at some point in time, mm. death is an inevitability. Mm. So uh, with that, what happens with number seven then? Final one is number seven. Okay, so now we've got the journey we must undertake. I've painted the destination we're going, the steps that we have to, uh, to take in order to go there. Story seven is the why we will win story. So you're gonna give them the one last push. And what we say is we, it, story seven is actually a meta narrative. It combines the previous six stories into one telling, but then with the addition of what we call keystones. And keystones are that secret sauce, the magic uh, wand, you know, the amulet, the, the thing that actually transforms what we have to do into something that is something that's going to get done because we have these keystones. And so if you remember from uh, history, you can see all sorts of different keystones. We have superior people, we have superior knowledge, we have a superior uh, technology, we have superior strategy. And there's literally hundreds of keystones, but you have to be able to tell what that keystone is to your people in order for them to say, yeah, that is absolutely believable now, let's do it. And so you know, I'll give you, a, here's a real simple keystone. Sometimes, sometimes the keystone is called death ground. Death ground. You'd have no choice but to do it. And so in 1519, Hernan Cortez, 
uh, fled Cuba with 630 people. And behind him was the governor of Cuba threatening, you know, uh, sending a, a ship's after them to bring them back to stand trial for mutiny, which wouldn't have ended well for any of them. But in front of them was the entire Aztec empire. <laughs> mm. You know, a lot of people, you know, certainly more than 630, a few million people of Aztecs, right? Fearsome, fearsome tribe that uh, was standing in their way and, and that's what they were trying to, trying to conquer. Well, in 1519, they landed in Veracruz. So that's when Cortez actually landed in Mexico. By 1521, two years later, Cortez's men and their allied Indian forces had control over the entire Aztec Empire. And that was because of this death ground story. Right? They had no choice but to do it. And of course, there's a lot of other things that helped them along the way, including bringing all sorts of, of uh, European diseases you know, to help decimate uh, the Aztec uh, peoples and such. Uh, but the courage uh, to move forward was in large part uh, driven by this idea that we have no other choice. Mm, mm. Well, there's lots of stories where, uh, you know, you land on an island, you burn the boats, and then you just don't kind of continue <laughs> on that part. So how do I actually uh, shape and weave this, I'll call it level seven or strategy seven story all together. Can you give us another example of that, that maybe a, a client that you work with, you don't have to reveal who they are, where that all comes together, or maybe your own business? Well, in the book, there's, a, there's an example of a story all about alternative uh, meat, alternative agriculture, so lab-grown meat. And the story goes through all these different types of things. A great little story. It's told in about you know, four pages. And it's all about, uh, it's fictional, but everybody can see it in the, you know, the entrepreneurs they meet in the technology space. It's almost an identical story to everybody. And so these uh, three uh, kids graduate from university and there's no job, so they decide to, uh, to start a consulting firm. And so they start the consulting firm and they're making money, but boy, is it ever hard. And it wasn't, you know, a, it was always a constant hamster wheel. And, you know, it is mentally exhausting, spiritually depleting. But along the way, they meet this guy. And this guy had, you know, developed a technique for alternative agriculture in the, in the meat space. And so it was, it was a wild thing. So they had a background in the science that this guy is all about. So they actually helped raise the money. They had contacts in the venture capital space through the consulting, space, uh, consulting business. And they were able to pull together a company around alternative agriculture. So they built the company up and, you know, you can stop there. But what they saw was a much larger mission. It was a social mission. How do you feed a planet of 9 billion people? It's 7 billion today, but how do you feed a planet of 9 billion people? You can't do it with the traditional, uh, what is a factory farming method. It is, uh, there's a lot of counter macro trends to it. Uh, there's everything from PETA, the, you know, people uh, for the ethical treatment of animals, mm -hmm. you know, saying factory farming is, you know, unethical, immoral, you know, people don't want to eat uh, livestock, uh, you know, what is it, the factory uh, raised animals as much as they perhaps once did, if they did ever. And so th there's all sorts of these different things that are macro forces for and against uh, that particular, uh, the old industry. And so the kids keep going, you know, and they pull this together and they're able to create great technology simply by advancing the venture capital funds into more and more of the science behind how to make the, uh, the uh, scientists technology better, right? And they create a great little company out of it. But the real thing with this is that those seven stories are all wrapped up in culture. And the culture is all about this is what we believe in and this is what we are going to do from a social perspective, from a public good perspective. And this is what we are going to create as a result of it. So it's going to be good for us, good for the planet, good for the people, right? Good for our employees, good for our shareholders. And we tell it into a nice little tight story of four pages. And that's what allows people to say, you know, I'm intrigued. This sounds like something I want to find more about. Tell me more. Tell me how I can get involved. And whether that means you're an investor or you're an employee or whatever it is, that story is the first thing you buy into. Mm. Well, we even know that, uh, you know, as a professional speaker for 32 years, 
is we know that story matters in any kind of presentation. Story is more memorable, story can be recalled better, and if story is linked into the principles, then that's way better than just kind of adding a bunch of data to, your, to the person. Absolutely correct. You know, you, you, humans are programmed to remember story. They have a really tough time remembering facts. They have very little problem remembering stories. And if you think about how you would relate your life to anybody, it's not going to be a bunch of facts. It's going to be about the stories you've lived. I suspect, Kieran, that we could actually apply this entire concept to ourselves personally. You know, I'm going in to apply for a position or a job. Could I not use these same seven sort of steps around positioning myself about why you should hire me? Absolutely. In fact, those seven stories, again, are primal. They are primal, right? So for the past 200,000 years, and now the first proto-languages that we spoke to each other are about 200,000 years old now. And since we started gathering around fires, it's all about telling stories. So if you're going to actually tell a story, you can tell a story about anything. You know, mm. it, you know it, it, it can be about any potential concept in front of you. It doesn't matter what it is. It's not just about leadership. It, it could be about why your kid should go to bed. You know, and there's a little story there, right? And stories are going to be much more um, digestible and memorable than get to bed. It, it, one's a command. The other one has meaning behind it. Well, it's interesting. I mean, one of the things that we've framed in our Secrets of Success podcast is we want to have, you know, a good chunk of every show or position or part of it as part of your story, you know, your journey. How did you get here? So that people can have some kind of identification with that. So if you can believe it, we only have a few minutes left. I mean, we started to gain momentum and your story started to unfold in front of us or at least in our ears, whatever format people are listening in. So before we kind of get into some wrapping up comments, uh, how can people get a hold of you and what is your contact information so that people can look at it? We'll put it in the show notes, of course, as well. Sure. Uh, my website is strategypeak.com. So strategypeak, as in mountainpeak.com. And if you come to the site, uh, you can actually download a uh, free chapter of the, uh, for a free few chapters of the book. Uh, but we're also doing a book giveaway as well. And I think, uh, in fact, here's the URL, strategypeak.com forward slash SOS. SOS, and if for the first five people that uh, register on that particular uh, landing page, we're going to send them a free copy of the book. Okay, so people, do you hear what he just said? He said, if you go to strategypeak.com slash SOS, then you are going to get a free copy, e-version, e obviously, of uh, the book, The Seven Essential Stories of Charismatic Leaders, or The Seven Essential Stories Charismatic Leaders Tell. So I have to get the tense right. And so uh, go take action. If you're one of the first ones to listen and boom, put your stuff in there and be able to get that book. So thank you very much for doing that for us. You know, when we kind of wrapping up this show in trying to bring this into a bow, what would be sort of your final two or three pieces of wisdom? You know, you've done some consulting, you're doing some work, you've written this book that you would just share to our listeners to say, you know, beyond what you've already shared around these seven sort of essential stories to as considered as wisdom that you have gathered, gathered and captured working with all these clients to say, here are some things to consider and think about going forward so that you can realize your potential. I think this idea that if you're going to realize your own potential, you're going to help other people realize their potential. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a very collaborative process that way. It's a synergistic process, right? Otherwise, you're just taking. And people usually, you know, stop people from taking too long. So it's got to be reciprocal. So if you're going to help each other out, you're going to get what you want by helping other people get what they want. You have to remember that the only thing that you have to offer at the very beginning is a story. It's a compelling story. It's a scintillating story. It's a story that has meaning for that other individual. You know, and that other individual can be marketplaces or it can be your employees or whoever it is. But it's got to be a story that is fraught with meaning 
that is important, that's significant to them. So if you're going to work on anything, and it doesn't matter what you are trying to accomplish, it, it just doesn't, you have to nail down that compelling story that is meaningful and relevant, emotionally significant to that, uh, that other party. And if you don't do that, you're going to have a very steep uphill climb. When you do that, when you give them that compelling story, they're going to jump into your boat and you're both going to sail into that, into that future together. I think one of the things you're really sharing is the opposite of being self-centered is when you give and support and really reach out to serve and help other people, it will come back to you. Exactly. So what would be your final comment to the audience, the Secrets of Success audience today, Kieran? The final thing is this. This would be the first question that I would ask any entrepreneur. And it is a very telling question if you nail the answer, and especially if you don't nail the answer. And here's the question. What is your story? Don't tell me about your products. <laughs> don't tell me about your services. What's your story? Tell me what the story is that you have formed that is going to be emotionally significant, functionally relevant to me. And if you can nail down that story, everything else is going to fall in line behind you. Well, I couldn't agree more about the story and just really shaping it in a place that is focused on the needs of others, not your own self-centeredness. And, you know, where'd our time go? All of a sudden, just boom, 45 minutes later, here we are. Thank you for hanging out with us today. Thank you, Ken. I really appreciate you having me on. Do stay on the line. So uh, go to a site, strategypeak.com. The book is The Seven Essential Stories Charismatic Leaders Tell. So go online, get it. And remember, uh, for the first five of you, you're going to get a free copy of his book. It's strategypeak.com slash SOS. So the question is for you is what is your story? But also, how is that story shaped and woven to serve others? Not from a self-centered point of view, but ability to be able to serve and help others. And if we do that, it is going to come back to you. So we certainly thank Karen helping us with that understanding today. So as always, we thank you for being a Secrets of Success listener. If you like what we're doing, pass it on, share it, leave a positive comment in whatever platform you're listening on. Thank you for listening to Secrets of Success. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Thanks for exploring the secrets of success with us. If you want to keep the momentum going, log on to crgleader.com. Scroll to the bottom and sign up for our inspirational emails. You can also take your success to the next level by following us on Facebook and Twitter and connecting with Ken on LinkedIn. We hope you have a great week and look forward to you joining us next time for the Secrets of Success podcast with Dr. Ken Keyes.